This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Okay, this concept really connects with me. The intersection of passion and commitment. It also describes Naz Riahi, founder of Bitten, a conversation around innovation and food. She's also the author of the upcoming memoir, Bad at Love. This woman who immigrated from Tehran has become a force in the food world and has created an amazing platform for influencers within it. Coming up, you'll hear Naz share a provocative conversation about emerging food trends and technology, what it's like to leave your homeland, about the pull between the past and future for women, and reflections on whether the sisterhood may be all that it's cracked up to be. A love of an emerging cuisine in the U.S., Persian food, and how food drives some of the most compelling memories. Plus, why Kit Kats matter, and why Nas fell in love with McDonald's as a metaphor for the feeling of safety. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves, each of us in our own way is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Naz, it is such a pleasure to have you here. We don't know each other very well, but in a very short time, you have distinguished yourself as a major player, a woman in the food scene in New York City, and you run one of the most successful food conferences out there. And I've been a couple of times and it's really fantastic. But I'm a little curious how you describe yourself. I, You wear many hats, so tell me. Oh boy. Um, well, thank you for having me and for the kind words. I'm blushing a little bit. So I actually have a really hard time describing myself because I do so many different things. First and foremost, I would say I'm a writer. That's always what I've wanted to be. That's always what I've wanted to do. I don't make the majority of my income from writing yet, but I hope that that changes. Um, Besides that, I would say I'm the founder of a company because I've spent so much of the last four years working on that. And so much I've given so much of myself to that in the last four years. And so that has defined me in a lot of ways. And it's certainly the way that people know me the best or the most, especially strangers. And then um, the third thing I would say in describing myself has less to do with work or aspiration and more to do with my identity, which is that I'm Iranian. Wonderful. Thank you for that. But the first two um, professions you mentioned about being a writer and also the company, they are about food, which is one of the reasons we are sitting here together today (laughs) uh, chatting about the, the food world and culinary world. Um, but is that true? Maybe, maybe it is not all about food. The company, Mm -hmm. absolutely. The company, it's called Bitten. I'm sure we'll talk about it. It is grounded in food. But again, it was a way for me to explore all of these other spaces that I was interested in while having something that I can say, this is the space that I'm focusing on, but it's not limited to restaurants. It's not limited to food startups. The way that I talk about Bitten is that it's a conference or an event series, rather. I hate the word conference. Oh, sorry, I used it. No, I use it. I use it as well. So it's it's grounded. It's an event series grounded in food that explores everything else that that 
has that doesn't have to do with food, but that ties back to food in some way. So that might be fashion, that might be trends, it might be justice, it might be equity, it might be art, um, and all of these other things that fascinate me and that I want to learn more about and all of these people that I want to talk to. Wonderful. I mean, it's very hybrid. Uh, I think you've done it four or five years, and I've gone to everyone except <laughs> this year, and I heard it was really fantastic. I always miss the best parties. Um, but you really are living in the intersections of all of these disciplines, which is really very exciting. You know, once upon a time, the food world was so knowable. You were either a chef or maybe you wrote cookbooks. Maybe you were in front of the house. Maybe you were a cooking teacher. But today, everyone does everything. And I'm a little bit like you. I also have trouble kind of IDing myself today. Mm -hmm. um, so we can get more into that in a little while. But I do want to read something to you, which you might recognize. It's something <laughs> that you wrote. Um, and I first want to talk about you as a writer and a food writer. We'll talk about all three aspects of, of what you mentioned. So I quote, the last meal I ate in Iran was a stew of cow tongue on white rice, its grains elongated by steam and enclosed in a perfect crispy tadig crust stained golden with saffron. What are you cooking? I asked Shishi, my mom. Beef stew, she lied, knowing I hated tongue. <laughs> End of quote. Guess what? My grandmother lied to me too. <laughs> About tongue. I oh, used to like so it, I, but they told me it was ham. Oh, and then when so I found neat. out that it was tongue, I said, how could that be? Yeah. Anyway, tell me when I read those lines to you, how you feel. Oh, it takes me right back to that kitchen to being nine years old. And I smell the tongue because tongue has a very distinct smell when it's cooked. And to be honest with you, I haven't smelled it since I was nine years old. And it's just imprinted in my memory. <laughs> that was the last time I ever ate tongue. I think you said it um, tasted like or smelled like rot. It does. To me, it <laughs> smells like rot. <laughs> That's a direct quote from you. Um, so interesting. But you were nine years old and you came to America. And what I read from was a chapter from your memoir, which will come out next year. But the name of this show is One Woman Kitchen. So I'd like you to go back to when you were nine years old in that kitchen with your mother and tell me, in addition to to the, the scent, it's a better word maybe than mm -hmm. smell in this case, the scent of tongue. Um, tell me what you see. Describe your mother for me. Oh, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. Back then, she had this luscious black long hair. She was darling. She looked like a doll, but she was also <laughs> incredibly fierce. You didn't mess with her. She is a Leo and she was a lion. She just all she had to do was look at me and I would know exactly what I was doing wrong and I would run away. <laughs> so she was very powerful and one look would do very, it. Very. One look, one look. That's all it took. It's still, I still don't ever want to get a look from her. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. Um, I don't have the same matchup with my daughter somehow. So, Naz, did that moment define you and your career in some way? When did your love of food really start? My love of food, I, I've i always had a complicated relationship with food, as I think a lot of women a do. A lot of women do. And I that is a result, I think, of, of patriarchy. We live in a patriarchal society. We are always told that we have to... Uh, look, be thin. Uh, we have to meet a certain standard. And I have never 
been a small per. Actually, I am a very small person. I'm five two. I'm I'm five <laughs> two, but I'm curvy. I'm not skinny, and that's always been a really difficult thing for me because my whole life I've aspired to be this thing that has been present all around me, that has been desired all around me, that has been the status of what a per- good, perfect woman should be. Well, actually, I'm going to ask you this. I'm fascinated because I think mm-hmm. the idea of beauty and thinness um, is very cultural, very mm-hmm. culturally determined. And somehow I don't wouldn't imagine that that was necessarily part of kind of the Iranian Persian look, but obviously I'm Absolutely. Not correct. Iran is the rhinoplasty capital of the world. <laughs> it's true. No um, idea. Uh, you know, nose jobs. My grandmother had a nose job way back in the day. Uh, there is a very distinct way that women should look and skinniness is a part of it. Mm. And a lot of that is informed by colonialism, everyone wants to be whiter. Everyone wants to look more Western. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first time that I was told that I needed to lose weight, I was six years old. We had come back from a trip to the U.S. where I'd, I have a sweet tooth and I don't know my <laughs> limit, where I'd indulged in a lot of marshmallows and a lot of <laughs> Coke and a lot of uh, cereal. And I went back and all the neighbors were talking about how I'd gained weight. I had this belly. And before that, it's like I'd never even – known that I had a body beyond the physical thing that enabled me to climb trees and run around my neighborhood. Mm. And um, that was the first time. And my mom was just being a good mom. She was worried about me. She was worried about what people thought of me. And so she said, oh, we need to put you on a regime, which is the Farsi and the French word for diet. Regime. Mm-hmm. Or regime. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was the first time. So I grew up At having six. a... <laughs> yeah. Mm. So I grew up having a very, very complicated relationship with food. Um, There was the part of me when we moved to the States that rejected my food because I wanted to be more American. There was the part of me that longed for my food because I missed home. Um, So on that level, it was incredibly complicated. There was the part of me that took solace in food because I was so alone. And food is, of course, the thing that can make you happy the most immediately of anything else. Um, I think at the end of the day, the reason I founded Bitten and I decided to make a big portion of my work about food was because I realized that it is completely universal access to food, lack of access to food, Mm. pleasure in food, the conflict around food. It is something that regardless of what your background is, regardless of what your current status is, you can talk about it and think about it and come together around it in a way that nothing else can do that. Fashion can't do that. Technology can't do that. Fascinating. Thank you. I mean, there it is a lot about pleasure. In fact, what we say in our company is that we are in the business of pleasure, you know, creating restaurants and doing what we do. But it also can be um, problematic and polarizing and, and all of these things that you mentioned in just a, a brief two minutes, a lot of the issues that exist in the world. But I think one thing that we all really do have in common is our own personal experience with someone in the kitchen when we were growing up. I think most often it, it is the woman, but not always. Um, and this idea of deep-seated memories taking place as they relate to taste and smells and sights, and we carry them with us, you know, our whole lives. Um, so I'm wondering, cause you mentioned about sort of the weight issue and the, some of the problems around food, but can you tell me a moment 
and I'm thinking it really was your mother who was in the kitchen, uh, in the one-woman kitchen, something that just makes you swoon. I love this word about food, swoon. <laughs> Some moment, was it a cup of tea and a cookie dunked in it, like your Proustian moment? But what what might it be for you? Because I think the Iranian, the Persian mm-hmm. kitchen is so vivid in terms of smells. And, um, and it's an interesting cuisine. Um, so I'm going to share two moments with you. Wonderful. And actually, neither of them have to do with my mom, Shishi, who... I adore. She she never liked cooking. She's uh-huh. a, she's a fantastic cook, but it was never the thing that she took pleasure in. And I think she resented the fact that she had to cook for the family sometimes. Mm. And so I would say, and she still is an incredible, incredible cook, but she never took pleasure in it in the way that I take pleasure in cooking, for example. But again, I don't have to do it for anyone. So I think that's the difference. I get to choose to do it. Um, So I would say that one of the greatest memories I have of our kitchen in Iran, our little tiny kitchen, is on the days that my dad was home and off from work. And I lost my dad when I was a few days before my ninth birthday. But when he Mm. was home and home from work and on his days off and in Iran, uh, the weekend was only one day. In the morning, we would wake up really early and he would make me breakfast and we would listen to the radio. There would be a story time on the radio and we would listen to it. And the breakfast was incredible. It was barberry bread that was super crusty because he had just gotten it from the bakery with sesame seeds on it. Um, He would buy milk from the farm and boil it to pasteurize it and put it in the refrigerator in a big pot. Mm. And on top of it, there would be this incredibly thick layer of cream. Mm. So he would take the cream and we would put it on the barberry bread that was steaming with honey and we would have uh, apple juice from apples in in our backyard. Oh, my. That was the most <laughs> lovely I'm memory. I'm Yeah. It's so interesting that the, this very strong memory is about your dad. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. And you said you had – that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And did you say barberry? Uh, I'm not sure. Barberry. Barberry. Not barberry. Barberry. Oh, okay. It's a type of Iranian bread. Mm. It's incredible. <laughs> I'm just going to know a little bit about uh, Iranian cuisine. And it turns out that we actually have this beautiful woman friend in, in common, Nassim, who yes. just opened this – fantastic restaurant in Brooklyn called Sofra. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk a little bit more about that. Sure. And, and what is your other memory? My other memory is of my grandmother, Madarjun, who is Shishi. I call my mom Shishi. It's a nickname that I have for her. We never called her mom. Um, so Shishi's mother, Madarjun, uh, who is the matriarch of our family, mm. um, would make me so in Iran, we drink uh, black tea all day long. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a thing. The samovar is always on. It's always there's always uh, tea when people come over. When there's nobody over and it's just you in the morning, we have sweet tea with our breakfast. In the afternoon, we have tea. So in the mornings, when I was in her apartment in Tehran, um, she would make me two colored tea, which Ooh, is, is <laughs> it's a thing I think she had made up, um, but <laughs> but she knew how to separate. Uh, the, she knew how to pour the tea between the sugar and the water and the and the actual tea because you take hot water from the samovar and you take a little bit of tea from the, the pot because it's too strong if you just pour from the pot with the mm. tea leaves in it. Um, and she would pour it over a spoon and it would separate. So the top would be red and the bottom would be clear. And it was two-color tea. And it was- I love this. <laughs> I love this image. It's so mm-hmm. wonderful. And now Shishi does it for my niece and nephew, which is lovely. And you've never seen it anywhere else. You think this is a 
family <sighs> legacy recipe, which we're going to actually be talking about, like oh, the yeah. idea of legacy recipes. I love this that idea. You know, you would think that it's a legacy, except that uh, my family has a has a way of saying, oh, this is just something we do. And then later I found find out that half of Iran does it, too. <laughs> and actually, one of the things is something I can tell you about when we talk about Nassim. And she was like, this isn't just your family. <laughs> you know, I think it's a very big secret, right? Uh, maybe there really are no original ideas. But there are versions of them. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so thank you so much for those two wonderful, wonderful memories. Um, so you and food and writing and the Bitten Conference. Tell me a little bit about your experience with other women in the in the industry. In the food industry specifically? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I there are so many impressive, incredible, powerful women in the food industry. Everywhere I turn, I'm unbelievably inspired by so many of them. I think that women as a whole have a hard time, not just in the food industry, but in every industry that I've been a part of. And I worked in advertising for a number of years. I've worked in publishing. I think women, again, as a result of having lived in a patriarchal society, we have a hard time supporting each other and we have a hard time bringing each other up. And the food industry is also a little bit like that. There is this competitiveness that doesn't need to exist. Yeah, and that it's I, a bit fraught. It's it not is. as, you know, sisterhood as we all like to believe. No, but we all pretend like it is. And that also frustrates me a little bit. I wish that we could just be honest about it. I wish we could we could say this is the problem. So let's fix it. Let's do things differently. Um, I feel, and I say this all the time, that any other woman's success in the food industry is my success. No other woman is going to bring me down. If they are elevated, that opens up a door for me to be elevated if I'm going to be completely selfish about it. And my success should be all of their success, too. And I really, really try to live by that motto. That's beautiful. What a nice (laughs) definition of selfish. Thank you so much. So we're going to talk more about all of the amazing women. Um, I just want you to know an anecdote that I read, which is hard to believe, but this is all so new and we're really all carving out our own paths in this vast culinary landscape that it's fairly recent. It turns out in the 1960s in America that a woman had a bigger chance of being an astronaut than becoming a chef. Wow. Unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) We'll revisit this soon. Mm -hmm. Coming up, you'll hear who has most influenced Nas. You'll hear what it's like to be an immigrant coming to America and really embracing the American food scene. And you will also hear a little culinary surprise. Here's a cooking tip to share. It's the world's easiest dip, and it's made with only three ingredients. The three ingredients are Parmesan cheese, olive oil, and a fabulous Middle Eastern spice mixture called za'atar. And you can buy it almost anywhere today, online at a Middle Eastern food market or gourmet grocery store. What you do is you put the za'atar in a bowl, you add the Parmesan cheese, and olive oil and stir. The proportions are basically a half a cup of za'atar, a quarter of a cup of parmesan, and about a third of a cup of olive oil. That's it. 
It's great slathered on pita bread or used as a dip for pieces of feta cheese or raw vegetables. Enjoy! From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Now sunrise, your kisses light my eyes. So I'd like to get back to talking about this wonderful woman we both know. I think you know her much better. Um, she was in her late 50s, Nassim. And she had never really worked in a restaurant before, and she'd never opened a restaurant, but this was a lifelong love of hers, and I think it took her seven years to do it. It's authentic Persian or Iranian food, and maybe, Naz, you can also tell me when I should be using one as opposed to the other, which is the more correct uh, thing to (laughs) say. But tell me your feelings about Nassim and this authentic Iranian restaurant that she is opening. Yeah. So Nassim opened at 59 a restaurant called Sofra in Brooklyn Heights. And it is exquisite in every sense of the term. It's beautiful aesthetically. It's beautiful in the way that the staff welcomes you in. It's beautiful um, in the food, of course, and the taste of it and the presentation of it, in the warmth of everything that you encounter when you go into that space. Nassim is Iranian. She's also an immigrant. She moved here in her 20s. And in some versions of the story, she'll tell you that she was planning on opening Sofra for over 20 years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think they had the space for six or seven years before they finally opened its doors to rave reviews, of course. Um, So authentic Persian food. I think that certainly I take a lot of pride in the fact that an Iranian has opened an Iranian restaurant and gotten so much praise for it. There is something that is very... um, sensitive uh, in our culture to talk about and discuss about ownership of other people's cultures in mainstream America by people who are not, like in this case, Iranian. So there is a very hip restaurant in Los Angeles that serves tadig as a side dish. I don't think they call it that. They call it crispy rice, but they clearly took it from Iranian chefs, whether they were friends of theirs or not. Now, just tell um, us about tadig a little bit, because it's a little bit new to me, too. I've read recipes (laughs) about it, but I've only recently had it. Yep. So tadig is, is, is when you cook a pot of rice, if you do it right and if you do it well, and in every Iranian household, uh, tadig is a part of every meal because every meal has rice in every it. Every meal. Every mm-hmm. meal. And when you cook rice, uh, it's not easy to make tadig at all. That's why a lot of people don't do it. Um, I say it's a combination of luck and experience, but <laughs> instincts and luck. Uh, but uh, the bottom of your putt, uh, pot, excuse me, you'll have a uh, a thick crust of either rice, potatoes, or bread. And it's crispy and it's golden and it's either buttery or oily and it's incredibly delicious. And It, it sure is. <laughs> it is. And I think that for me, I am especially proud of an Iranian woman, again, opening an Iranian restaurant because there is something, there is a piece of me that is taken away when I see someone who's not Iranian, who is white, who is a man, for example, creating that the food that has been mine and my cultures for hundreds of thousands of years and owning it and profiting from it and not giving credit to my culture for it and not giving back profits to my culture for it. And again, I'm a brown woman who grew up in America. I come from 
an Islamic country. My family would consider themselves Muslim. I grew up Muslim, although we are all secular. It doesn't matter. I have experienced enough racism. I've experienced enough people thinking that my having horrible negative stereotypes about my culture. I still at least twice a year will encounter someone who'll say, where is your accent from? Mm. And I know that I don't have an accent when I speak English. And that person will always insist that they can hear it because they're very, they have a very good ear. And what they want to know is where are you from, from? Um, I hear you. You know, uh, Nazan, thank you very much for bringing this up. The whole idea of culinary appropriation is becoming very topical and um, I really want to be as sensitive as I can to it. And I really even appreciate you mentioning this restaurant in Los Angeles, you started to say. So it's they're serving Persian food, but it's by non-Persian or Iranian Yes, uh, yes. Cooks. And mm-hmm. it, they, they serve – one of the things that they serve is tadik and they call it crispy rice. And I just heard Samin Nostrat. Of course, she's an amazing Iranian cook. She's the host of uh, this incredible TV show on Netflix and she has the book Salt, Fat, Heat, Acid. Great book. She was just amazing. She's incredible. She was just on another podcast I was listening to and she said – you know, Los Angeles is full of Iranian restaurants. All of these people could have just gone down to Westwood and eaten this for years at these Iranian restaurants. Iranian food is not a new thing in America. It's not a new thing in New York. It's not a new thing in Los Angeles. It's not a new thing in Michigan. It's been around. It's been here. It's not a new thing in Texas. It's just that why do we need some – why do we need it to be whitewashed <laughs> for it to be acceptable? Yeah, it's complicated. I also feel, or this is really more of a question, is there anything tender, Mm -hmm. uh, though, about someone from another cuisine cooking someone else's food as a way of connection and appreciation and inspiration? I think there is a distinct difference um, between cooking and profiting. And cultural appropriation is about profit and it's about power. Cooking, anyone, you can come cook me tadig and I'll be delighted that I came to your house and you (laughs) made Iranian food for me. I can cook Japanese food or I can cook Mexican food in honor of all of my friends who are Mexican and um, learn from them and have them in my kitchen teaching me their, their family's tradition. But if I went tomorrow and opened a Mexican restaurant and pretended like I was the greatest Mexican chef, I would feel ashamed of myself a little bit. You know, this is a very new dimension to the conversation. Again, I've been in the food world for 40 years, and this has really not come about uh, until recently. And I really appreciate where it's coming from. And it really started in music and has obviously um, really infiltrated many other uh, practices and industries. and, And I totally get it. Um, Well, before social media, people of color didn't have the same platform that white Americans had and particularly white male Americans had. And social media has sort of democratized that and given a lot of people who didn't have a voice before a voice, a platform, um, so that they are no longer so much the other that they thought that they were, that there's all of these other people just like them who think just like them who also exist, even though this wasn't the narrative that had been told to us for many years. So it's it's a newer conversation and a very important one. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it'll be a big part of your bitten um, conversation next year. But let's talk more even about uh, One Woman Kitchen. Here's Nassim opening mm-hmm. up this very authentic place. And many of the women that you have come speak uh, at the Bitten Conference are fascinating women. And I'd like to get back to the idea of One Woman Kitchen because yes. 
each of them in their own way mm-hmm. really embodies that. So can you tell tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the more remarkable women you've met and maybe how the idea of One Woman Kitchen uh, um, applies to them? Yeah, every single every single one of them is incredibly remarkable. I would have to say it's it's hard. It, I would never be able to choose one. Um, <laughs> but actually, we did have, uh, just to give her credit, I worked really closely with Kimberly Chow of Food Book Fair to give a talk at Bitten about cultural appropriation two years ago in food. So we had that. She's obviously incredible. You were ahead of your time. <laughs> Every year, I try very, very hard to make sure that I have at least half women um, speaking at Bitten and half or, or as many people of color as possible. This year, all of my speakers except for one was a woman, which is incredible. Was it that accidental or was, very, very um, No, completely. Deliberate. It was um, It was not intentional, but I was very happy about it. I don't use feminism for marketing, and that's a very uh, – that is a decision that I make. But – I did not have a problem with the fact that most of my speakers were women. In fact, I was delighted that so many of the topics that I wanted to cover, the experts I found happened to be women. And so that was a really incredible opportunity. Our youngest speaker, uh, and we had women from uh, four generations. Our youngest speaker uh, was a 21-year-old NYU student who gave a talk about um, how she wanted to learn about the food system holistically and has really applied that to her studies and actually made it the focus of her studies from working on different farms around the world to being now a butcher's apprentice in the city. And she gave an amazing, she opened the conference, gave an amazing talk. Our oldest speaker was in her 60s. um, And we had women uh, in every age in between, basically. Wonderful. You know, I think that is really one of the most exciting trends right now, this idea of intergenerational inclusive and interactive. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what uh, this show is about in in many respects. And of course, it's for women by women, but men are so welcome to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, join the conversation as, as you would say. So you have a memoir coming out next year. How much of the memoir is actually about food? You're going to be disappointed. It's okay. Uh, just that chapter that was published. <laughs> <laughs> so the rest of it is about politics. It's about what happened in Iran, why your yes. family needed to leave, it's, what um, it meant coming to America. It's about love, actually. The book, and it encompasses all of the things that you mentioned. So in this way, this essay was about food, and it was about love of food and why I love food and the way that it brought all of these other loves into my life or protected me. So... Um, or this chapter, I should say, that was published. Uh, The book is called Bad at Love, and it's Mm. about um, romantic love. It's about family love. It's about love of country. uh, It's about love of culture. um, And it tells my story from Iran through coming here and my adulthood. So what about the bad act part? (laughs) (laughs) We got the love part. So you feel that Mm. uh, you're in process to... Learning, still learning, learning, still making a lot of mistakes. (laughs) So I was very intrigued in this uh, chapter, your food, the one food chapter in this book. Um, Although I have a feeling food probably uh, has defined more of your journey than maybe that than you actually wrote about. But I mentioned something about culinary surprise. And I think the culinary surprise for me was, finish my words, was that when you came here, you felt safety and comfort in a particular place. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> McDonald's. And McDonald's, yes. <laughs> that would be surprising from someone who <laughs> runs a 
popular food series. Uh, um, I would say that that's the thing about food, right? There, it's a very highbrow, lowbrow mixture that 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 each person has to customize for themselves. That makes sense. Um, and for me, McDonald's, when I was a child, when everything was foreign to me, when I'd lost everything, mm-hmm. was a safe place. It was a place my older brother took me to where I felt happy. Everything had its order. Everything tasted great. There was a place to play outside. There were bright colors. And I realized very quickly that there were McDonald's everywhere in the U.S. Every city that I went to, every neighborhood that I went to had a McDonald's. And even in my early 20s, I lived in Spain. And when I first moved to Spain, I was by myself. I traveled for four months alone. I was feeling very lonely. And whenever I felt incredibly lonely, I would go to a McDonald's because there were going to be people speaking English there. There were going to be Americans there. And it was kind of surprising that it became this other safe place for me and continue to stay that way for so long. Wow. Do you still feel that way about McDonald's? I don't feel that way. And part of the reason (laughs) is because I live in New York and fast food culture in New York is very different. And certainly the fast casual space has really taken over um, uh, in big cities where fast food used to be. So But having written that piece, and for many, many years, for probably most of my life, by choice, I was a vegetarian. And I started to eat fish a few years ago. And after I wrote this chapter, I thought, oh, I should, the next time I'm in a suburb, I'm going to go have a filet of fish because it's been, (laughs) you know, almost 30 years since I had one. Yes, they're very uh, significant (laughs) taste memories, and I hope it pleases you. But I think what what, um, enchanted me and surprised me, uh, of course, was the choice of McDonald's, was the the word safety, that you felt safe there. I thought that was so interesting. And number three is that your brother called that apple dessert ap- American apple pie. And of course, nothing could be further from American <laughs> apple pie than McDonald's apple dessert. But it's delicious, it was hot and though. delicious nonetheless. That's and the a- Sundays are very good and the soft serve. They do some <laughs> things very well. At comfort food. <laughs> When we come back, I'm going to let my wonderful guest try a cake that I baked for her. And then you'll also learn what Nas would make for me if I came to her house for dinner. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. So, Naz, I baked a cake for you this morning, and I'm going to want to know what you think of it and maybe even what you think is in it. Um, But while I'm cutting the cake for you, I'd like to know what's up for you now, what's important, and what are some of the challenges that you're finding? Um, I didn't know that there was going to be a cake in this podcast. (laughs) I am so excited. And how am I supposed to focus on any challenges when I see you cutting cake in front of me? This is delightful. It's a beautiful cake. I hope that we take a picture of it. Uh, Challenges. Let's see. I guess challenges and opportunities. I'm so excited about the year ahead. Every year when I host Bitten, and this was my sixth one, I think it can't possibly get any better than this. How am I going to even match this? let alone exceed it, which is what I always hope to do. And somehow every year up until now, that's happened. I've managed to exceed my own expectations, the audience's expectations, the speaker's expectations. And again, not 
me alone, a big part of it is the audience and a big part of it are the speakers who attend. And so collectively, we've all been somehow able to magically exceed the last event that we had. And um, and when you say exceed, I mean, obviously, the number of people who come and the you know positive response that you get, but are you really breaking new ground? Are you yes. discussing an issues that very few people have. Yes. For example, I mentioned we two years ago had a talk about cultural appropriation yes. in food. And that was still in the early, I would say, we're like you said, we're still in the early days of discussing and understanding and all of that. So that's, a, that's one example of it. In terms of exceeding, I would say that every year I learn how to do it better. Um, and I try to apply those learnings. I'm never satisfied just repeating the exact same thing I did the year before. So after the second year that I hosted the event, I did two in one year. So I did one in New York and one in LA. And after that, I decided that I needed to practice with every single speaker, their talk, approve it, make sure that it tells the story that I want it to tell, and that they are able to do their best telling. And that's made a huge difference. In the beginning, I didn't feel like I had a right to do that because the event was very new. And I felt really grateful that these incredible people were coming to speak. Uh, People like Jonathan Gold have spoken at Bitten. I'm not going to tell Jonathan Gold what to speak about or, you know, of course, now he's passed. But but I, I was so grateful that he was even taking my stage. Now Bitten has grown in popularity. It's gotten a little bit of uh, fame and a little – it's considered an important event in the space. And I feel like I'm experienced enough to be able to offer that kind of feedback and help the speakers and presenters make their talks better and make them more memorable. And so that has made a huge, huge yeah, difference. I think it's really a gift to them. Everyone has a story to tell and – and um, and we all love hearing other people's stories, and that's why we're so excited that that you are here. What are your feelings, uh, your own feelings about food and cooking? Mm. Is that something you do a lot of for yourself? Just like everything else in my life, I am very. Uh, I guess the way that I approach food is very confusing. I might <laughs> I might open a can of beans and have that for dinner, literally straight from the can, not even heated up. Or I can cook a completely elaborate seven-course meal for two of my friends that come over. I do love to cook. I love to bake. I don't like to do it for myself alone. There's something about cooking that, to me, is joyful because it's shared. And me sitting alone at home cooking an, cooking an elaborate meal and then eating it alone doesn't give me the same joy that a table full of people does. Absolutely, because it's about nourishment, isn't it? it Which is. is one of my favorite words. Absolutely. So speaking of food oh, and I cooking, I would like you to try okay. the cake. Oh my goodness, this and, looks lovely. Well, maybe I shouldn't even say it's a cake. Maybe it's not a cake, right? It seems so, kind of like a loaf to me, right? Am I mistaken in that? For the audience, it's mm-hmm. a round cake made in a two pan with a hole in the middle. And it's very... Um, kind of artisanal looking. Well, it's very tender and it's not mm. too sweet, which I love. Wonderful. Can and you identify an... any of the ingredients? Well, sugar and flour for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably some butter. Actually, um, no. Oil? There, yes. Yeah. Olive oil. Um, and there's a, is there cardamom in there? There's a flavor I recognize, a spice. Right. What is it? Um, it is rosemary. Rosemary. Huh. Is there a lemon? There's no lemon. Mm-hmm. There's there lemon. Mm-hmm. You're good. You've got a great palate. <laughs> 
So if I'm coming over to your house Delicious. for dinner, mm-hmm. Naz, what are you making for me? Oh, I would make you tachin for sure. Tachin is an Iranian dish, and it's my absolute favorite. So you cook the rice, which is this elaborate process, as I mentioned earlier. Is it a special and kind of rice? It's a long grain basmati. There, and it absolutely matters what kind of rice you buy. You can't just go to an American grocery store in New York, the deli, and buy long grain basmati. You have to go to a Middle Eastern store, an Iranian store, an Indian store. So long grain basmati. And what you do is uh, you soak it in water for about an hour. You wash it, then you soak it in water and let it elongate for about an hour. You can leave it a little bit longer if you want. Boil it until it's just long enough but still quite al dente in a water with a lot of salt, probably 10 or 15 minutes. Rinse it completely to get rid of the salt and the extra starch that's on it. And then before putting it back in the pot, you take some of it. I'm in Iran, we don't have recipes traditionally. We ah, just watch our moms cook. Right. And so I can tell you that you take some of the rice. <laughs> I don't know, maybe a cup of it, maybe a little bit more. And you mix it with egg yolks and thick yogurt and saffron. Mm. And then you put it back in the pot with a lot of oil so that the tadik you get is this amazing cake. It's unbelievable. It's Different so delicious. Yeah. yeah. And then you put the the rest of the rice on top of it, so half of your rice. You can make your whole rice tachin, but my mom always just made the tadik tachin and then put white rice on top of it. And that can be served with my favorite topping, which is barberries fried in butter and sugar and um, a little bit of rose water. And you top the rice with that, some slivers of pistachios and almonds, and it's my favorite meal. I'm coming over <laughs> soon. How long does it take you to make that? It sounds like rather elaborate. Right? You you bring the cake. <laughs> okay. Speaking of the cake, if we were to make that cake feel a little bit more Persian, what might we add to it, or what might you serve it with? Oh. Um, and I will bring the cake. So, but how do we make it feel more? Well, thematic? we serve it with with tea with Persian tea. So it's black tea with cardamom in it. Mm. And that would definitely make it feel a little bit more Iranian. Um, The cake itself, we use all sorts of, we've used turmeric and everything, of course, not usually in sweet things, but now it's becoming a trend to use it in sweet things here. But um, rose, pistachio, cardamom, those are really strong prominent Iranian flavors. Even though uh, I know a lot of your book is not about food, I there was something that you mentioned about pistachio that you brought that Iran mm-hmm. has the best saffron and yes. that you brought pistachios that were soaked in lime and salt. And I, I don't know what that is. So I would love to know. Oh, I should how, have brought you some. How that's mm-hmm. used or, or why that's done. I wish I knew why it was done. Mm -hmm. It's just how we always eat our pistachios. And I used to suck on the shells because they're so delicious. They're so salty and limey. So the pistachios Um, are in the shells and it's mm -hmm. mixed with lime, fresh lime juice and salt? Yes. Is it baked Mm -hmm. or just... I imagine it is Mm -hmm. because it does have a little bit of a color. So I think it's it's dried somehow, probably baked, but it's it's so delicious. Can you buy, can you buy those prepared that way anywhere? Like one of the Middle Eastern stores? Yeah, absolutely. Middle Eastern or Iranian grocery stores would have it. LA has a lot more Iranian grocery stores. There's Sahadis here. Sahadis might have it in Brooklyn. Wonderful. But um, I know that most adults don't suck on the shell the way that I <laughs> that's, do. That's so what you think. That's a remnant. That's what you think. <laughs> um, is there a drinking culture in Iran? 
at all? So, yes, absolutely. Until the uh, Islamic Revolution, Iran had a very robust drinking culture. (laughs) (laughs) I see. And until pretty much until his death, my dad's father, who lived in Connecticut, you know, five o'clock was cocktail hour in Iran and here. Everybody dressed up and had a cocktail. Two o'clock was... (laughs) time for a beer. You know, it's just absolutely my family are big drinkers in Iran. After the revolution, it was something that people still did. Uh, but it was hidden, of course. And right now, from what I understand, you can get all sorts of alcohol on the black market in the 80s during the Iran Iraq war, it was a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. So my dad used to make wine, we had a really lovely sort of uh, orchard in our backyard, a tiny little orchard, but probably four or five different varieties of grapes going down the middle on this beautiful trellis. And so he would pick the grapes and we would make wine. And I remember his mother stomping on them in a in a bucket and we'd put them, bottle them and put the bottles in, in our shed in the back. And I helped my dad make beer pretty regularly. Mm. Um, and he would also make vodka, but that was I think a much more dangerous process, and I wasn't allowed to be in the kitchen when he made vodka. <laughs> I see. So I'm imagining your your garden, your tiny kitchen, the garden, some of the smells. Uh, obviously, you had grapes. I remember you mentioned that you had apples. And uh, um, just tell me a little bit about dried limes, because I know that's a very big part of Persian cuisine, and I'm not sure it's part of any other. Isn't oh, this unique interesting. to Iranian food? Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, have you ever had them? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think they're called uh, they're called limu amani limu. So we call them limu, just the same word for lime and lemon in Farsi. Um, and uh, and I put you, traditionally we put them in stews. Yes. I actually put them in soups in the winter, and they're delicious in soups. And you can eat them. A lot of people take them out because they do have this very strong taste. The li- kind the of lim- earthy, funky, yeah, yeah, citrusy. Mm-hmm. But I've always loved those uh, those sort of earthy, citrusy, funky. I, I love natural wine. I love kombucha. So um, so yeah, that's uh, they're amazing. I have a bag of them in my cupboard right now. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And tell me this, we're living in sort of Me Too times. I don't know if this mm. is something that has really affected you personally, but... <laughs> is there is any next... woman it hasn't affected? Well, I think I the think... whole point of it was Me Too. <laughs> me Too. And different... But there's so many... It's so complex, right? There's so mm-hmm. many... I, I'm afraid that we have lumped so much of this into one bucket. Um, but is 2019 the year of the mm. woman? Is it the year of the one-woman kitchen and us all figuring out who we are <laughs> as we... You know, we're inventing this mm-hmm. um, movement, not the Me Too movement. I mean, that's also true, but the culinary movement and what it mm-hmm. means for women. Again, once upon a time, it was very, very knowable. You were a cook or a teacher or uh, I think we're all becoming entrepreneurs in many ways. And we're all finding our most authentic selves in the um, culinary world. I... I'm by nature a very optimistic person. I think it would be hard to say that in this year things are going to change. I still think it's going to take decades and decades. I don't think that even in even if I live to be a hundred in my lifetime, women are going to reach equality with men, unfortunately. Just today I read an email from the James Beard Foundation that had a few stats in it. And I think in the culinary world, women make up Less than t- maybe four, even four. I don't. I don't know the exact mm-hmm. figure, but mm-hmm. less than twenty percent of cooks and she- or chefs in kitchens are women. I think closer to the 
mid to low teens, something like that. And um, we have a long way to go. And in order for women to reach equality, let's talk about wage the wage gap, for example. So in order for a woman to reach pay equality, the company isn't suddenly going to make more profit so that they can pay the woman the same that they've been paying the man all those years. Someone is going to have to take a little less. Either the owner of the company, the stakeholders in the company, that man is going to have to take a little bit less for his job in order for the woman to get paid the same as him. And people are selfish and they're not going to be giving most of them, not all of them, most of them are not going to sacrifice anything of themselves in order to do that. So that's why I think it's going to take a really long time. Uh, I was recently a part of the Women in Hospitality Hospitality United Solutions Sprint, and I led uh, a group of women in talking about the wage gap in the food industry. And one of the solutions that we came up with and something that I've been advocating for for years across every single industry, not just in the food world, is for people to share their salary information. If men Hmm. talk about how much money they make, then women can't be paid less for the same job. That's a very innovative idea. Um, And hopefully this gap will start to shrink. And I would love to hear the one optimistic feeling you have about women, because I know you're very optimistic and very (laughs) forward-thinking as well. So either for yourself, a wish for yourself personally or for your best girlfriend out there? Oh, you know, I would say that I'm excited about the opportunity to open doors and hold them open for each other. I think that the one thing that I can say about not having equality right now is that the opportunity to achieve equality is great. There's a lot of room. There's a lot of doors for us to go through. There's a lot of doors for us to hold open for each other. And we should do that. And I'm excited to do that for other women. And I I hope that women continue to do that for me. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So Naz, you are in a powerful position, actually, to address some of these issues. And when is the conference coming up? And um, it's open to the public and anyone can come. And and what will some of the topics be that will address some of these things? So Bitten just happened uh, at the beginning of November. So the next Bitten, it's an annual event. The next main stage event is going to be October 25th in New York City of 29, October 25th of 2019. And the topics are still being I, I was going to say discussed, but I'm the person making the decision. So <laughs> I'm thinking about what the topics are going to be. Can this anyone last... actually apply to you to be a speaker? No, or... mm-hmm. no, You're I don't. Selected. I don't take pitches. I don't take applications. This year, I wanted to open up the opportunity to hear stories that I hadn't heard or I wouldn't necessarily have access to. And so I sent an email out to my mailing list and I asked them if, that if they were interested in speaking at Bitten. And they had a personal story to share, not a story about their business, but a personal story about how food had affected them or changed their lives, that they should apply. Most people who applied wanted to talk about their business. And Bitten is not – it's an ideas and inspiration event. It is not an event where – I invite people to tell me in the beginning it was and I've changed that. That's another way that it's going. It's not an event where I invite people to sell me on their business. Uh, And there's a specific reason for that. I want everyone in the audience in that room to feel like they learned something important, to feel excited about something they didn't know about. 
to feel inspired for them to spark an idea for the event to spark an idea within them and that's that's really really important to me and i think educational talks and personal talks are the way to do that uh so i focus on that last year we had a talk about food as a weapon of power we had lori will ever give an eloquent and beautiful talk about her former friend, boss, and mentor, Anthony Bourdain, and how really her life fell apart with his death in a lot of ways as well. She also talked about working for Mario Batali and knowing a lot of his behavior while she worked for him. That was incredibly powerful. We had a talk about fishing and responsibly consuming fish. Mm. <laughs> we had Nassim give a talk about the magic of opening Sofra. We had a talk about the intersection of food and art. Really so many different topics were covered. A talk about who Gen Z is and how they're influencing trends in the food space. My audience, I really, really encourage people outside of the food space to come to Bitten because I feel like when you leave your computer or your office and that for one for just one day don't think about the thing that you think about all the time but allow yourself to absorb something completely new that still relates to you because as we discussed food uh relates to everyone in some capacity i think that if you if you do that then that's where your best ideas are going to come from that's when you're going to take your next big leap and so uh, i encourage everyone to come about half of my audience works in food and half of them don't and every year we get a few more men to attend. Right now it's about 70-30, the split. But it used to be 80-20 with 80% of the audience being women. Fantastic. I'm all in favor of more collaboration and um, kindness and compassion between mm -hmm. uh, men and women. Mm -hmm. um, I know men have been very inspirational and important in my life, uh, women too. And maybe someday we don't even have to look at it that way. We really look at each other's people and human beings who have like interests. But thank you so much for the opening uh, to come full circle with you. So if you wanted, if you were applying to be a speaker at Bitten, <laughs> what would be your food story, the food story that changed your life? Oh, I, I would talk about Kit Kats. I <laughs> <laughs> Good. Let's hear. I would talk about Kit Kats when I was, I don't know that it changed my life, but when I was little, again, it was in Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, a lot of Western foods were really hard to come by. But there was a store in our neighborhood, in our tiny suburb, uh, just an hour away from Tehran, where um, they had Kit Kats sometimes. And my older brother, he's 12 years older than me, when he babysat me, he would take me to the center of town, which was this really tiny center with two stores. That's all that there was. Mm -hmm. And we would get Kit Kats in the summer. And they would be melty and gooey because they'd just been sitting out in the store and there was no air conditioning in the store probably at that time. And we would walk home and he would say, okay, I'm going to put these in the freezer. And if you're good, I'll give you your Kit Kat. And I would sit and I would be so good. I wouldn't make any trouble. And I would wait <laughs> And he would give me his Kit Kat and I would savor this Kit Kat until it melted all over again, all over me. And um, to this day, Kit Kats are one of my comfort foods. I, If I could have a Kit Kat every day, I would. I try not to. I have them probably more frequently than I should, but well, <laughs> not as frequently as I want. <laughs> so bad at love, good at Kit Kats. Very. <laughs> and even though one of your talks was about the food, using food or food as a weapon, mm -hmm. I really like the idea of 
using food because it has such a big part of, in our lives, mm-hmm. all of ours, as a vivid, beautiful connection to who we are, even if we were maybe not so happy even in our childhoods. But I think uh, food is a source of connection and love. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Naz, I know many people will want to know more about you and certainly about the Bitten Conference. So how can people be in touch with you? Well, Bitten is on social media and our website. All of it is This is Bitten, B-I-T-T-E-N. So on social media, we're at This is Bitten and the website is thisisbitten.com. And on social media, I'm at Naz Riahi, N-A-Z-R-I-A-H-I. And uh, my website is nasriahi.com. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank I'll you. I'll be checking it out too. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And remember, when you nourish others, you're nourishing yourself too. Until next time, I'm Roseanne Gold, and this is One Woman Kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.